0: Heavenly Father, on this beautiful winter morning, we want to turn to Thee, acknowledging that Thou art the one who is the source of all things, that everything we do here today would be in vain without the blessing of Thy Spirit and Thy presence among us. But Heavenly Father, it's so good that in faith we can accept the promise that says, Where two or three are gathered in Thy name, that Thou art there in the midst of them. And so, Heavenly Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, we invite Thee through the power of Thy Spirit that Thou wouldst be our unseen guest here this morning as we would discuss these things, that we would learn to approach life and view uh, our circumstances through the eyes of faith, and in doing so, that we would be able to rise above uh, both difficulty and trial to see Thee and to see Thy face and Thy love for us. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. I didn't um, have anything particular premeditated this morning to speak on, and so my normal practice is simply to open the Word, and I actually did that in the bench here this morning, and the Lord laid a particular chapter on my heart. So if you'll turn with me to Paul's letter to the Philippians, the fourth chapter. Philippians chapter 4. I'd like to begin begin reading with the 8th verse, Philippians 4, beginning with verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now ye, now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only." For even in Thessalonica, he sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. I've read to the end of the chapter. Let's bow for prayer.
1: Oh gracious and almighty God we come before your throne of grace this morning hour knowing that you hear and see all things even our very thoughts you know and we're thankful that you do know Lord because you know our needs you know our weaknesses, our frailties, and you will provide them as the Lord Jesus himself in his wonderful Sermon on the Mount taught his disciples how to pray for the things that are essentials in our lives, for the things that should have priority in our lives. And the first is to acknowledge Thee as our Father in heaven, and that Your name needs to be revered and hallowed, and that we worship You alone, the living God, one holy being, yet in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And then we pray for our physical needs. We have ample physical needs in this country. Our daily bread, our needed, needful bread to sustain us physically. And even though our spirits may be willing, yet our flesh is weak in more ways than one. Yet you provide for us. You are Jehovah Jireh, our provider. And we ask Thee, Lord, also to not allow any of the trials that become temptations for us, that that would lead us into sin. You have the power to overcome sin, to put to death sin in the mortal bodies, in the sense that we don't have to sin anymore because we have the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ that has overcome death, sin, and hell. And through your Holy Spirit, we have also been made alive and quickened to have power over sin, to, to be able to say no to sin, to flee from sin. Because you are holy, we need to be holy also. And you've also asked us, Lord, in your prayer, to forgive our sins, that we pray for that. As we sin against thee, we also sin against one another, and we should forgive one another. For in doing so, in forgiving one another, we are no more like Christ than any other element in our lives, aspect of our lives. Because he forgave, we also ought to forgive. Because we receive mercy, we are also to be merciful. As He spoke in the first, one of the first Beatitudes, to be merciful. O oh Lord, we pray that we can fulfill that high and heavenly calling. That we could be walking worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. As he walked, we also also should walk following in the footsteps of the, the great rabbi, the great master. And we're thankful, Lord, for your word which grounds us, which places us on the solid rock, which is the truth that comes from thee, the living God, that this world does not follow and does not have. The truth is relative The truth is formulated for their own certain circumstances, how they feel. But we know that your truth is absolute and divine. And we have no fear of failure if we follow your word, which lives and abides forever. As we bow before thee this morning, we pray also for those that are not here, for those that are... In great pain and suffering, whether it's physical, emotional, mental, and even spiritual. We pray, Lord, that you would visit them through closed doors as you did the disciples in your day, that you would convict, that you would inspire, that you would comfort. For your word is powerful, more powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to separate between soul and spirit, between joints and marrow. We pray that your word would go forth this morning hour, that you'd give our dear brother the utterance, the clarity of mind and the wisdom to speak, and that our hearts would be open to receive it in faith, in meekness, Father, we pray for the sick. We pray that you would comfort them and strengthen them through your word and through your Holy Spirit, who is the comforter, who is the strengthener. There are so many. We especially pray for Vasil Baranga, who's been dear to our hearts, who has faithfully attended with his wife, To church meetings four hours away in summer and winter. Lord, we pray you touch his heart. And that he'd hear your humble, your cry, his cry. Father, you, we pray that you'd also be with the, the small churches everywhere, in Regina, in Rodney. in beverly hills in northport there are many that are that need strengthening and support and we pray that you'd help those that are willing to go out and and share the gifts that you've given them and the talents to support them father we pray for those that are in war torn countries we see our brethren in Ukraine that were, had been faced with possible conscription to be drawn into a war that has already hundreds of thousands of lives that have been destroyed and perhaps not being able to hear, have done so not being able to hear the gospel of Christ or respond to the gospel of Christ even if they wanted to. Father we pray that you are the one that knows why these things are happening we pray that you would open the eyes of this world to realize that joy and fulfillment and peace and contentment doesn't come in gaining more land being nationalistic in promoting our nation, but rather in promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ, for you gave Jesus Christ for all the tribes and nations of this world, as the promise went out to Abraham, that in his seed, in Isaac, shall all the nations of the world of the earth be blessed. We pray you'd spare the suffering of innocent ones, the children. We pray that you would also open the eyes of the adults, of the parents to see who is the true God, what you demand of of them. Even Israel itself has forsaken the Messiah, the Christ who was Jewish by birth. They have forsaken him. And we pray now that they would cry unto to him and say blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord so that he would return as the savior of a remnant be with us bless us for we commit this service now into your care and keeping and we ask these things in Jesus name amen
0: many of you may have heard the popular quote of the German philosopher Karl Marx, who said, religion is the opiate of the people. An opiate is a painkiller. He had a very cynical attitude towards religion, and that attitude hasn't left us, I think, in our increasingly secular society, Uh, many people view religion as a a coping mechanism, a crutch, a psychological crutch for, for the difficulties of life. That might be true of some religions. But I don't see that's the case with Christianity. We've read together the fourth chapter of Philippians, at least a good portion of it, penned by a man who went through some pretty incredible experiences. The Apostle Paul began a very privileged life, studied under the best schools, uh, the best teachers of the time in Jerusalem. There in in ancient Jewry, the uh, academic pursuit legal pursuit, and religious pursuit were actually all one. You studied the law of God and its application, and you sharpened your mind through the debate and dissection of that law. And Paul's conclusion from his studies was this new sect called the Way, or the Followers of Jesus Christ, was a heretical sect that needed to be stamped out. And he did his very best with a great religious fervor to make sure that this group didn't spread any further and didn't contaminate what he saw as the orthodox teachings of the Jewish religion. But he had a singular experience. He tells us in the word of God that he met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And that meeting forever changed him, set his life on an entirely different course. And from then on, his life became very difficult. He went from a life of privilege and respect to a life of being an outlaw from those, his own countrymen who he loved dearly and wanted to see them come to the truth. Have you ever had the experience of getting something wrong and telling other people about it, sure that you were right at the time, and then realizing afterwards, oh no, I, I had that completely backwards. And then there's the desire to go back and kind of make it right and say, well, I'm I'm sorry, I was mistaken. I didn't I didn't realize something about that. Uh, please don't spread that any further, or, uh, or try to try to correct. Well, with Paul, this was even more intense. He had given his word that had caused the death of, of those early Christians. It says when, they were, when there was a, a case against them, he gave his voice against them. In fact, the first time we read about him in Scripture, he is keeping the garments of those who will be stoning the first martyr, Stephen. It says they laid their cloaks at the feet of a man named Saul. He realized his mistake, and as he began his new life in Christ, he felt crushed, I think, by the guilt of what he had done, realizing now the magnitude of his error. And the Lord gave a special word to him through Ananias, who was the one who baptized him up in Damascus. He said, you go to Saul and baptize him, and tell him what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. You think, wow, what a lousy way to motivate somebody. That's not going to make it into any self-help book. Tell them that it's going to be really difficult, and it's going to be really, really painful. But I think for Paul, that was actually um, a, a cloud with a silver lining. Because he realized that through that suffering... He would be able to, to show the, the world how sincere he was about what his, what his new discovery was, that he had been so wrong in the past, and now he had found the right way. And not only that, but that when he would one day meet those saints that he had given his word against and participated in their death, that he would be able to look them in the eye, saying, I too also suffered for the cause of Christ. Christ. But suffering is not uh, uh, meritorious or beneficial in isolation. I don't think Paul liked suffering more than anybody else does. I don't like to suffer. I jokingly say that when it comes to uh, my exercise philosophy, it's very simple. No pain, no pain. Don't do it. It's painful. (laughs) I don't enjoy pain. But I have seen in my life that pain and difficulty is the way and the path to growth, to growth and to blessing and to progression. And for someone who consistently avoids pain, they will become stunted in other ways. If you go through life trying to avoid every painful circumstance, you will find you don't have much of a life. You're going to be seeking... uh, Painkillers, a way to, to numb the pain. That's the path to things like substance abuse and addiction, to um, isolating yourself in entertainment and other, other forms of, of mental games. That's not reality. You're actually running from reality. You see, the Christian religion doesn't, doesn't varnish over the difficulties in life but it shows us through those difficulties that there is a redeeming factor and a uh, a path to to uh, personal growth and communion with the one who suffered in our place we're not dealing with an with a with a, a remote God who's so far removed from our circumstances and and maybe even as in some other religions a uh, would would seem to mock our suffering. He suffered with us. In fact, he suffered more than any of us. But he endured that suffering because it says in the scripture of the hope that was laid up for him. The expectation that the suffering that he was going through was a path to a better future. And that through suffering, he would bring, it says, many sons to glory. Apostle Paul caught that vision. and so though I believe at this time he was in a prison cell in Rome he writes rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice and you think this is this man delusional shut up for two years in a prison back in Palestine now transferred to Rome he had he had to uh, make an appeal to Caesar because if he knew that to go back to Jerusalem for a, for a mock trial before his countrymen was to invite assassination. And so it's a, he says, I, I appeal to Caesar. And the Lord said, you've done the right thing. You're going to witness for me also in Rome. And so here he is in Rome. And in a prison cell in Rome, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. His communion with Christ was so Close, so intimate, that he could rejoice in that suffering in a legitimate way, not in a delusional way. You see, the first words of his new Lord to him was Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? The Lord felt the suffering, he feels it still. That's not something I understand, so don't ask me to explain it to you, but it's something that really encourages my heart. You see, faith is not uh, absent of reason, but faith goes beyond reason, and though I don't understand exactly how it is, how the Lord of glory could suffer still in heaven, it says that he does, and that's such an encouragement to me down here. Paul says, Be careful for nothing. Don't have cares for things. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. I've mentioned already a few times, I think, uh, that I'm reading through the, the, the full biography of the missionary, Hudson Taylor, who uh, began the China Inland Mission. He was one of the very first to go into the interior of the country and share the gospel. And while he was a young man in his late teens, and he was still in England, he felt burdened that this was his, going to be his life's work, that he was going to go to China to share the gospel with those that are there. A quarter of the globe's population occupied that country. And he tried to determine how best to make himself useful for that work. And so he determined that uh, some sort of uh, study in the medical field would be necessary, and so he began that route, even though he didn't have a whole lot of money and couldn't afford full uh, training as a doctor, but then he decided there's something even more important than that, even more important than skills and language and so on. You know, in the days before Duolingo, the, the process of learning a language like Mandarin that was so different from the European languages and structure, he got a a copy of the Gospel of Luke in Chinese. And he compared the characters to to the English text to try to figure out which characters were repeated and might mean the same word. And so he found about 500 words, I think, between the Gospel of Luke as a young man, just going back and forth. But he decided there was something more important than language, more important than medical skill, and that was if he was to sustain himself, to be sustained in that country, cut off from from, from European aid and, and, and ministering to a group of people that had no common cultural basis, he decided that the most important thing would be that he would need to be able to learn to pray that, that to move God to influence men. That the most important thing would be the supernatural and that it would, he would have to learn how to pray so that God would move the hearts of men. Wow. Wow. He realized it would be necessary for his financial needs, for his safety, and for the conversion of those he was speaking to. And in his life, he proved this verse. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And his life story is fascinating. I encourage everyone to read it. But it started with small things. In England, while he was still there, that he would not uh, directly um, ask men for his needs, but he would petition his heavenly Father, who knew everything already. You know, I think this is something that if the Lord gives me ability and time, I'd like to preach perhaps a series of sermons on the attributes of God. Because I think we have the wrong idea about God, and so often we pray wrong. God already knows. He knows what our needs are. We tell him nothing new in prayer. But prayer is an opportunity for us to calibrate our hearts, to realign them to God and to his purpose. And so that when we ask, our prayers have power. That's the key that both the Apostle Paul and Hudson Taylor have, and many saints, of course, between have discovered. <clears throat> and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now this kind of sounds like pie in the sky by and by. Just do this and you'll have peace. Isn't that what everyone wants? Peace? The ability to cope with difficulties? Why is it then if 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 Karl Marx was right? Why is it then that as our society has become increasingly secular, we've become increasingly anxious? And we have less of that peace, though our outward circumstances are arguably easier than any other previous century. Perspective. I think perspective is the problem. When we realize that there's a Heavenly Father who cares for us, and we have learned to trust Him and seen His faithfulness in little ways, not a name-it-and-claim-it name kind of gospel, not a health and wealth. You just, need to, you just need to claim the promises of God, and he's going to fill your bank account and give you health, and you're going to have a perfect family. No, that's nonsense. Apostle Paul, I think, was probably uh, the very best disciple of Jesus Christ, at least from what I can read and see. And look how much He suffered. That kind of doctrine is patently false. It's wishful thinking. It's designed for those that have carnal appetites and want to put a little veneer of Christianity or religion over top it to make them feel good. But the peace of God comes from seeing the hand of God again and again. And you only see that, I think, when there is no other way. Faith is never a plan B. Faith itself has a perturbing quality, and this is why our reason um, sometimes prickles at the idea of, of a faith that seems to go beyond reason. We would like to test things. We create a hypothesis, and then we design a test to test that hypothesis. And we'd like to do the same with faith, except it doesn't work that way. Faith happens when you trust the character of God in extremity and there is no other way out. And that sounds ridiculous to a man who holds reason above everything else. But reason is not the highest. I think you'll find that yourself. Don't you realize that you're often mistaken? Don't you realize that you can't know everything? Don't you realize that it's very, very possible to base a whole chain of reasoning on a faulty premise and you end up somewhere way in left field? How much do you trust your reason? For those that are willing to trust God, it's not that they need to abandon reason, but faith will take them beyond reason. And that becomes now the stability, the rock, the peace that this world is looking for. For those that are unwilling to make that step, God says, I can't do anything for you. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. He will not ask you to abandon your reason, but you cannot come come to him by reason alone. It's impossible. I didn't make that rule. He did. But for those that have tested it, And have found it to be true. Oh, what blessing. In my own life, in small, limited ways, I don't suffer much. But in small ways, I've been able to test this. And what a blessing it is to know that I have a Father in Heaven who loves me. And not only that, but I have a brother on the right hand of the Father who's interceding for me. Who knows what it's like to suffer. Who understands every problem before I even bring it to him. And who loves me and wants the best for me. And will never place suffering on me needlessly. There's always a purpose behind the suffering that he gives us. I don't always understand that. Paul didn't understand it. He had a thorn in the flesh, we read in the scripture. Something that was really bothering him and was a hindrance to his work for the gospel. At least, at least that's what he thought. And it says, he besought the Lord three times that he would remove it from him. Now remember, this is the man that healed other people miraculously, and yet he has this thing that won't go away. And then he realized the word from the Lord that came to him was, my grace is sufficient for thee. My grace is enough for you. My strength and my power is made perfect or complete or evident in your weakness. And Paul said, oh, okay. I understand now. It's better for me to have this suffering. That the best, the optimal course, the very best for me is to have this suffering now that seems so unpleasant because it's working for me a far more exceeding weight of glory, like he says in another place. That wasn't a limit of God's power that he didn't provide for that difficulty he was facing. That was actually a path to greater glory and greater power. You see, one of the most elusive things in this modern world we live in is contentment. I think you'll find that in yourself as well. When was the last time you were truly content with something? You know, perhaps you think back to a time during your childhood. There was something you really, really wanted. As children, we can get really fixated on things, right? As adults, too, I suppose. But... You know, you've got that, that new whatever it is in your, in your mind. And you think, oh, life is going to be so great once I have that thing. And then you finally get it. And what happens? For a while there, there's that initial euphoria. But then it fades. Right? Then it's not so special anymore. Then maybe if it's a toy or a thing, you break something on it. And then, oh, it drops again in value in your eyes. And you realize, no, no, that's not it. That doesn't satisfy. For those of you that are about my age, you may remember a sports figure. Uh, I think his name was Reggie Sanders. He's a multi-sport athlete. I may have got the name wrong. <laughs> I'm obviously not a huge sports fan. But his, his nickname was Mr. Primetime. And he was, a, he was a top player both in the, uh, the, the, the National Baseball League, as well as in the football world. He played both sports, MVP, trophies, championships. Go read the story of his life. Here's a guy who seems like he had everything. He, he says he tried everything, looking for some kind of contentment, something that would give him that lasting satisfaction, that contentment, that yes, this is it. He said he bought a brand new uh, Ferrari or something like that. He said he hadn't driven it more than five miles before he realized, no, this isn't it. And at one point, at the lowest point in his life, he says he was driving along a canyon road and he stopped at the side of the road. And he thought, what's the point? And he jammed the accelerator to the mat and drove his car right off the edge of the cliff, trying to end it all. He survived, miraculously. Miraculously. Why would a guy like that do something like that? Can that lack of contentment get so bad? Yes, it can. Blaise Pascal, the great French philosopher, says, There is a God-shaped hole in every man. And nothing will fill it except for God. When you have an infinite hole, it's got to be filled by something that's infinite. And there's only one thing only one who is infinite, and that is the great I am that I am. Paul, in his miserable circumstances, in the difficulties, in the pain, found something that so refreshed him and centered him that he needed nothing else. He said, I have the most important thing. Anything else is fine. It doesn't matter whether I, have, I lack or I've got plenty. The richest man is not the one who has the most but needs the least. I've heard that quote before, and that's, that's an interesting perspective. I like that. The one who has the thing of true value, everything else is, is of, of no account. So whether there's not enough it seems, or plenty, so that it's running over, neither really change the change the equation. They're negligible. Paul says, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Isn't that a wonderful place to be in? Unchanged by your surroundings? Whether circumstances are going well or not, you're the same. Isn't that what we'd all want for ourselves? Why is it that we go up and down? Well, we're trying to add something to the perfection of God, and it won't work. It never has, and it never will. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Some professional athletes like to use that in their, um, marked on their uniform, or I think there's even a, a competition bike that has it on it. This idea that Christ is my magic talisman that gives me top performance. No, that's not it at all. Not even close. Close. The understanding is that I am nothing and he is everything. And therefore, if he wants something done, he'll get it done. And he'll even use me to do it. In spite of my inability. And so nothing will be impossible to me if it is his will and he is in it. That realization of the greatness of God, I think, is the key to powerful prayer the right understanding of who God is, that he can do all things and that I am nothing, then I only need to ask according to his will. And if it is his will, it will come to pass. And if not, maybe I need to rethink it. Or maybe I just need to pray some more. Maybe there's something in me that still has to come out. Some little imperfection that's going to get in the way of the final result. And God says, no, 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 I'm not quite done with you yet on this score. There's something else. There's, 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 a, there's still a flaw that's going to need to come out through this experience. That didn't make Paul unthankful for the good things in life. He, he talks about his, uh, the, the Philippian church that, that sent uh, provisions, money, food, clothing perhaps, to provide for him in that prison cell, and he thanked them for it. But he realized who was giving it to him. And so he could do both without any, um, uh, without any contradiction. He could both thank the Lord for providing exactly what he needed, and he could also thank the Philippians for being the ones who are the instruments of God in doing that. When we look at life and say, well, good things come from God, and bad things or suffering must come from the devil, you've got the wrong idea about God. Your idea about God is not big enough. God is able to use every circumstance. He's even able to use the devil to accomplish his will. And ultimately, one day we will see it. We sang together in hymn number 311. One day we shall see it clearly. We'll be able to look back and go, oh, that's why he did that. That's why this had to happen. This looked so bad at the time. But now I see how necessary it was. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. You see, when the focus is taken off of ourselves, we can see this the way Paul did. Paul is concerned with the needs of the Philippians. He said, God's going to supply everything you need. What about his needs? He's a prisoner in a cell. Can't seem to get much lower than that with with the prospect of a death sentence hanging over his head. Being eaten by lions doesn't sound like a great way to go, in my opinion. But he's concerned with the needs of others. And that, I think, is the foundation for contentment. The focus, always, is outside of ourselves. The irony is, when we try to please ourselves and do what we think is best for ourselves, we end up miserable. When our focus shifts to God, he puts everything else in order. And then we can see also the needs of others and can joyfully supply. You can decide. You can view religion through the the lens of Karl Marx and say, well, that's just a painkiller. That's just something to take the edge off things. Pie in the sky, by and by. Or you can realize that a relationship with a God who loves you and has already suffered so much on your behalf is actually the foundation for contentment here and glory there. It's a matter of perspective. What are you going to lean on? The purely naturalistic worldview is pretty depressing. Follow it to its logical conclusion. But the way that Paul... Christ before him of course but but Paul points as well is the path not only to contentment here but glory there and one day you know people say things like oh i can't live like this for the rest of my life this isn't the rest of your life this is only the beginning the short opening act in what will be an eternal existence we don't cease to exist But God, in his will and mercy, has decided that he has extended the offer to us and given us a will that we can exercise, that we can choose where we would like to spend that rest of your life. Choose wisely. Amen. Would a brother please?
1: When... uh Brother Phil mentioned about sporting celebrities. It immediately perks up my interest being raised in Australian sports and uh, I've preached many times, been mentioned many times over this pulpit about one particular individual that did go to China. And today's the, I believe, or this year's is, I believe, the 100th anniversary of uh, his Olympic game feat in Paris, France, where he couldn't run because of his convictions. He couldn't run in a heat that would probably have given him the 100 meter gold medal, but he refused because he believed he needed to be in the Lord's house on on the, the Lord's day. Eric Little, his name. And though he didn't win that, because he never entered that, he entered the 400 metres which he never had really run before and he won it by a good five metres. His name was Eric Liddell and they made a movie about him called The Chariots of Fire. Probably after the biblical uh, story of Elijah being carried away in Chariots of Fire to the Courts of Glory. And also, if you remember, he didn't stay behind for the accolades when you know superstars come home from the, the Super Bowl or wherever they have this big parade down the center street of the main city and then streamers and all kinds of celebrations. He didn't stay long. That was his last Olympic Games. He went to China because he felt that's the Lord calling him to go there. And the image that I had as a long time ago uh, when I was going through my what if, should I go back to Australia? The image that came on my, to my mind and I even talked about and preached about was every single person, no matter how many trophies you accumulate, no matter how many uh, magazines you're in, no matter how popular, no matter how much money you, you get from what you're doing. The thought was, all your trophies and all your fame and all your magazines and everything, will you can just lay that on top of your grave. And who's going to come and look at that when you're dead? Who's going to even come to tip their hat? It will all rot. And everybody is on the same plain if you will in the sense that they will all die they will all be six foot under and what will the world think of you then oh they may mention you oh he was the greatest but what does it mean to god what does it mean to your eternal soul big difference and the we had some uh, very appropriate hymns but one hymn that came to my mind when when I when I was contemplating this, what was being preached in the chapter that we came on, is hymn number 58. And I'd just like to read three verses and then I'll close. Hymn number 58 says, verse 1, How bright is the Christian's most own innermost living, although from without it no beauty may show, rich gifts from their king. They are daily receiving an indwelling strength that the worldling may know, that no worldling may know. What no one revealeth and nobody feeleth, upon their enlightened minds grace is bestowing and in them a dignity godly is showing. Though outwardly they may seem poor and rejected, the joy of the anguish, the scorn of the world, yet inwardly, They are the glorious elected, Christ's jewel, his crown and his banner unfurled. And that's also in the book of Philippians chapter 3. That he now engages to serve the great king who is star of the morning, who then with his righteousness true is adorning. Verse 5. As pilgrims they journey, their home is in heaven without any strength, they protect the whole world. They protect the whole... Christians protect the whole world. How? They are the salt of the earth. They're they're minimizing the rot and the corruption of this earth. They are the salt of the earth. They share the true peace Though the world is war-riven, they are the most poor, yet they never have dearth. They stand here in sorrow, yet joy in yon morrow. They seem to have died to their weak outer senses, directing their life through the faith God dispenses. May we all remember that. To him be the glory evermore. Amen. This concludes our service.
0: In the spirit of what I said this morning, I'd like to offer just a short correction. It was Dion Sanders, not Reggie Sanders, in case anyone wants to look it up. Thank you.